Here's a trustworthy saying. Whoever inspires to be an overseer desires a noble task. Now the overseer is to be above reproach, faithful to his wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him, and he must do so in a manner worthy of full respect. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. He must also have a good reputation with outsiders, so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. In the same way, deacons are to be worthy of respect, sincere, not indulging in much wine and not pursuing dishonest gain. They must keep hold of the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience. They must first be tested and then, if there's nothing against them, let them serve as deacons. In the same way, the women are to be worthy of respect, not malicious talkers, but temperate and trustworthy in everything. A deacon must be faithful to his wife and must manage his children and his household well. Those who have served well gain an excellent standing and a great assurance in their faith in Christ Jesus. Although I hope to come to you soon, I'm writing you these instructions so that if I'm delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. Beyond all question, the mystery from which true godliness springs is great. He appeared in the flesh, was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, was taken up in glory. Well, good morning. It's uh, my privilege to open up 1 Timothy chapter 3 for us this morning. Dear Father, as we continue our journey through 1 Timothy today, we ask that your Holy Spirit would speak deeply into our hearts so that we might embrace our identity as the community of faith from your word and not from the opinions of the world. Show us who and why we are so that we might fulfil our calling as the pillar and foundation of the truth. Amen. Now, what does the world say about the church? Well, history shows us a variety of opinions. Friedrich Nietzsche, an influential 19th century philosopher, wrote of the church, What are these churches now, if they are not the tombs of God? Not all that flattering. In the 20th century, a TV show, Yes, Prime Minister, and within that show, the public servant, Sir Humphrey Appleby, is asked about the church and he comments, no one actually goes to the Church of England. 
but they like to know it's there. The church is some sort of security blanket. And then a 21st century poet, Sir William Watson, penned this short poem about the church. Outwardly splendid as of old, inwardly sparkless, void and cold. Her force and fire all spent and gone, like the dead moon, she still shines on. I suspect we'd want to protest such descriptions. I certainly do. The church is not the tomb of God. It's not simply a security blanket, nor is the church void and cold like a dead moon that shines and has no heat. But could we personally give a clear statement of the church's identity and purpose? I suspect if asked to send your own perspective through connect at myfact.org.au, we'd get a variety of answers. So let's turn to 1 Timothy 3 and see what God thinks are the answers to the questions of the church's identity, its purpose and strategy in society. Now the chapter opens with a comment about church leadership. Here is a trustworthy saying, whoever aspires to be an overseer desires a noble task. The text immediately goes on to describe the qualities required of those appointed to leadership. What makes the leader's task noble, according to chapter 3, 14 to 16, is the identity of the community the leaders lead and the message of Christ Jesus, which actually gave birth to the community. Therefore, before looking at briefly at the selection criteria for leadership of the church, its homemakers, let's explore what makes these roles so noble. 1 Timothy 3, 14 to 16, forms the centrepiece of this spirit-authored letter of Paul's. It explains both his reason for writing, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves, and the ground from which true godliness springs. So first we look at the home truths, which ought to shape the homemakers. Our identity described, we see here communal concepts. Let's be clear, how you look at something or someone shapes your response. Take, for example, COVID-19. Look solely through the lens of a life-threatening disease is something to be feared and avoided at all costs. Looked at through the lens of science, it's something to be researched and treated and conquered through a vaccination. Looked at through the lens of God's sovereignty, it's something to be faced with faith, driven, dependent prayer. So we see that the lenses we look through shape our responses to whatever we are looking at. Now, I've already noted some of the world lenses for how they look at the church. But let's now look at the lenses that God provides. And in the scriptures, there are many, but here we find three. Firstly, God's household. The world outside is exactly the same world to uses exactly the same word to describe the overseers and deacons' families. 
That's what a household is. It's a family. It's a dynamic concept, which becomes clear in chapter five when Paul writes, do not rebuke an older man harshly, but exhort him as you would a father. Treat younger men as brothers, older women as mothers and younger women as sisters with absolute purity. Now, does this lens shape your response to each other at Fig Tree Anglican Church? Do we view our gatherings, which we soon will return to, do we view them as weekly family reunions, not a social club? In our families, we've no choice about our siblings and parents. So in the dynamics of our church household, we're here by the grace of Father God, the sacrifice of our older brother Jesus and the dynamic power of the Spirit. Loving an earthly parent or sibling doesn't always mean we agree with them. So in the church, we may disagree on vaccination, government policies and women's ministry. But we're always to move towards each other as family with other person-centred love. The church's household is also no ordinary temporary family. Notice it's both supernatural and eternal. Why is it that? Because it is God's household. This immediately is reinforced by the second lens for looking at the community of faith. We are the church. We are the gathering of the living God. I don't know whether you've ever been into the engine room of an ocean liner or been at the start line of the Bathurst 1000 as the V8s rumble waiting for the start. You can physically feel the throb of the dynamic engine and the power that it holds. Well, the engine of the church, the gathering of God's household is to throb with the dynamic power of the living God. Every element of our life together is empowered by this truth. The living God dwells in us corporately and individually by the work of the Holy Spirit. In the various roles our household members exercise, the tech, welcoming, children's and youth ministry, uh, hospitality, the music, uh, the leading and casual conversations we experience, in all of these things, we experience the gifts of the living Christ building us up in love. They throb with God's presence. Through the reading and preaching of the word, we hear God's transformational voice. We meet the living God at our table as he dynamically makes himself known to us in the breaking of bread. In fact, so dynamic is our fellowship that Paul in 1 Corinthians 14 says it's possible that unbelievers who might be present will declare that God is really among us. Soon as we gather, we'll once again experience, I trust, the throb of the dynamic power of the living God amongst us. Indeed, may we still have a sense of that during our online presence. So we are the household of God and the gathering of the living God. Finally, or thirdly here, we are the pillar and foundation of the truth. Centrepoint Tower is one of the distinctive marks of Sydney's skyline. 
Its tower or pillar protrudes above the streets below. Its stability is assured by the many steel stays around it, along with the foundations that go deep below. And so the restaurants and the viewing points above remain secure. What centre point is to Sydney? The church is spiritually to society. The church provides both visibility and stability for the truth of the gospel of Christ in the world. Paul throughout 1 Timothy refers to liars and false teachers who twist the truth to their own liking. But the true church, directed by gospelful leaders, is to both defend the truth from error and proclaim the truth to everyone. We Christians, though, can be quick to criticise our secular neighbours, family and colleagues for abandoning the Christian faith and Christian values and even attempting to rewrite history by cutting out Christian truths and foundations. But what we need to look do is look in first before we criticise out. Have we been true to our calling and our identity as pillars and foundations of the truth? Have we dynamically held forth the gospel of Christ, rebuking lies and rehearsing the story of grace in Jesus? Rather than criticise secular people, we should pray for them. We should seek to share Christ with them. So maybe we need to repent of our criticism and return to our divine calling as prayers and proclaimers of truth. As a commentator Locke wrote, each local church has in its power to support and strengthen the truth by its witness to the faith and by the lives of its members. Members who follow godly leadership. So we've seen our identity described. We're God's household, the gathering of the living God and the pillar and foundation of truth. Given these extraordinary lenses of identity for the community of faith, we can see why being an overseer, being an elder, being a deacon in the church, this is a noble task. A task which, as we shall see shortly, is filled with significant responsibility. But before we turn to this, we must ponder the actual truth that is the source of our existence and identity. So our identity declared Christ-centred. Verse 16, beyond all question, the mystery from which true godliness springs is great. He appeared in the flesh, was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world and taken up in glory. The Spirit through Paul provides a memorable poem to creatively capture the central teaching of the Christian faith. A poem which is the teaching heart of the letter. Now, just before going to Lord Howe Island for 10 weeks of ministry, I'd turned 70. Two of our dearest friends arrived to holiday with us for two weeks. And they arrived with a mysterious 
quite large box. And as I opened it, I discovered it was filled with 70 wrapped gifts. Took quite a while to open them. As I opened each small parcel, another gracious treasure was revealed. It was great fun and reflected the generosity of our friends. So the gospel of Jesus began as a mystery, filled with wonderful truths, but hidden from the unbelieving mind. Yet now it's been lovingly opened and revealed by the gracious hand of God. And as my 70th birthday mystery box produced in me joy and affection for the givers as they'd gone to so much trouble. So as the wonderful truths of the gospel of Christ Jesus are revealed, they cause to spring up in the believer's soul the fruit of godliness. This mystery now revealed is declared as great beyond all question. This underlies both its supreme significance and its acceptance by authentic Christians. Finally, we highlight that this truth of Christianity isn't impersonal dogma, just words on a page. No, it's about a dynamic person of history, Jesus Christ. The church is to be Christ-centred in its manner of life and its mission. While, not, while there are several options for unpacking this interesting staccato poem, I believe that the, the, the view that takes it as three pairings is the most helpful and most persuasive. Firstly, then, he appeared in the flesh and was vindicated by the Spirit. Jesus became a human. But through the empowerment of the Spirit, he was vindicated to be divine. His miracles and signs bore testimony to his divinity. Jesus, the God-man, who can understand our struggles, but also assists us with them. He was seen by angels and was preached among the nations. This bear speak of the bearing witness to Christ. What took place in the relative quietness of first century Palestine is now acknowledged in heaven and across the earth. All rational beings acknowledge Jesus, celestial and terrestrial. The angels do so in glory and the people of faith tell his story globally. Christ is the centre of all things. He was believed on in the world and was taken up in glory. This final pair speak of the reception which Jesus Christ received. But it's more than a reception, isn't it? It's actually a triumph. People believe and are transformed from sinners to saints. And Jesus himself was raised from death and ascended to glory to sit at the right hand of the Father, ever to be worshipped and adored. Jesus, welcomed in the earthly theatre and in the heavenly throne room. Now these three Fold pairings capture the truth of the gospel and have brought the church into existence. They tell us the story of Jesus. They've given the church an eternal identity and mission to fulfill. The late John Stott wrote, the mystery of godliness which the church proclaims, the truth which the church is the foundation 
and pillar is the historic cosmic Christ. Well, having taken some time to understand the community of faith's God-given identity and its Christ-centred message, we can better grasp why being a Christian overseer is a noble task. It's to participate in the Lord's great cosmic purposes that cross heaven and earth. Oscar Ness is a Christian English author and social commentator. On one occasion, he commented on the contemporary Christian church from his own observations. He wrote, The church too often has become sugar and spice and all things nice. It's embraced the sort of health club model of church, where too often the leadership is offering the jacuzzi, uh, the coffee shop and the social aspects of health but ignoring the aerobic classes and the weight training. We offer all the blessings of the gospel without any discipline or discipleship. Well, that is not the model you find in the pages of 1 Timothy. Here we look at our identity directed under Christian godly leadership. Now, what I want to do is reread this text because it actually just is fairly clear what it's saying to us and then just make some brief observations. Let me read the text again. Can I, I encourage you to listen carefully to what is being said about the leadership of the church? Now, the overseer is to be above reproach, faithful to his wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach not given to drunkenness, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him and he must do so in a manner worthy of full respect. He mustn't be a bully. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? He must not be a recent convert. Or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. He must also have a good reputation with outsiders so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. In the same way, deacons are to be worthy of respect, sincere, not indulging in much wine and not pursuing dishonest gain. They must keep hold of the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience. They must first be tested and then if there is nothing against them, let them serve as deacons. In the same way, if the women, now I need to stop and comment here. There's great discussion about this matter. It could be deacons' wives it's referring to or it could be women who are deacons. Whichever stance you take, the context clearly suggests these are women who are taking responsibility of leadership in some form or other as part of the leadership team within the local church. So in the same way, the women are to be worthy of respect, not malicious talkers, but temperate and trustworthy in everything. A deacon must be faithful to his wife and must manage his children, his household well. Those who have served well gain an excellent standing and great assurances in their faith in Christ Jesus. Uh, these words describing the leadership the church should recognise 
raises the godliness bar very high. It clearly stresses character over competence, although competence is clearly not ignored. So based on chapter 3, verse 16, that the message of Jesus is the source of true godliness, it's clear that all appointed church leaders, overseers, deacons, deacons' wives or deaconesses are to be people in whom the message of Jesus has taken deep, deep roots. Not only that, it now overflows into every corner of their lives, private, public, domestic. They are to be standouts. They're, to, they're obviously radiating the graces of the gospel. Sue and I have a pot plant in our backyard that is now overflowing with flowers. For months, it was a tiny young green plant, alive but clearly not mature. But with watering and feeding, it developed, it matured, and now it radiates its true glory with an abundance of colour. We're impressed because we normally kill plants. Well, recognising the strategic role of the household of faith, the scriptures teach that its leadership would be people of maturity who radiate the graces of the gospel in every word and work. Leaders, the gospel has transformed. Pagan and secular societies, first and 21st century societies, can be marked by immorality, drunkenness, greed, violence, favouritism, gossip, broken families and the like. So how important that those who lead the church have transparently abandoned such behaviour. They've learned to exercise self-control and live authentic lives. We need to remember that the first century church didn't have ready access to the scriptures. There were no printing presses. There were no Bible apps. The church and society needed leaders who would be sermons in shoes. They needed walking Bible apps. Still today, this needs to be the case as there's such an ignorance of the Bible. The gospel, the overseers teach and the deacons hold forth in a supporting role needs to be mirrored in their conversations and in their conduct. Please hear this. You see that godly authenticity does not have a use-by date. It is always required. So we see here that ministry is also exercised in a team model. Different people of obvious spiritual maturity exercise service in their particular skills. It might be teaching. It might be in a supporting role as the deacons and the deacons' wives or deaconesses. It could be that in their managing and organisation of the church. The importance of demonstrating good family management for church leadership only goes to underscore the fact that church is God's household which needs to be managed in an orderly, not a chaotic or a random fashion. 
Now, also emerging from this list of leadership qualities is the fact that the church cannot embrace a ghetto mentality. No, it lives transparently and publicly before a watching world. Hence the importance that leaders be above reproach, no public sins, that they have a good reputation with outsiders and that there is nothing against the deacons that could be uh, laid claim to being evil that's obvious. Christian leaders need to model a face to the world, a society which may oppose them, but a society which needs the grace of the good news of Christ both preached to them and visibly lived out before them. Now we at Victory Anglican Church await a new senior minister and we should continue to pray the Lord raises up a leader whose private, public, domestic life is soaked in the gospel, the gospel of Christ. For it is from there that we've seen true godliness springs. But we should also be a household a family that is continually building a culture of discovering future leaders, discipling them and deploying them across the globe. This, as our text demonstrates, is God's strategy. The discovering, discipling and deploying of godly, authentic leaders also does not have a use-by date. Well, Maybe when Christ returns, but until then, we press on in this task. Well, let me bring this to a conclusion. In the early 19th century, the English writer G.K. Chesterton wrote, We do not want a church that will move with the world. We want a church that will move the world. And 1 Timothy 3 has shown us what that church looks like. I recall hearing the story of a store that had closed and the owner, when he left, put a big sign in the window. We are closed. We went out of business because we forgot what business we were in. Today, we've been reminded about our identity and built within that identity is the business that we are in. God's household which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. We'll always be open for business while ever we remember who and why we are. While ever the home truths concerning Jesus Christ shape our homemakers and the households they lead, we'll be in business. And what is that truth that shapes us and fashions us? And that is our message. He appeared in the flesh. He was vindicated by the Spirit. He was seen by angels and preached among the nations. He was believed on in the world and taken to glory. For now, society will no doubt keep trying to marginalise the church and silence her voice. They may even echo the 19th century German philosopher Nietzsche, what are these churches now if they are not the tombs of God? But let's not have a bar of it. Rather, may we all keep courageously responding. Tombs of God? You've got to be kidding. No, we 
are the churches of the very households of the living God. We are the pillars and foundations of the truth concerning Jesus Christ. Let us pray that's what we will be. Heavenly Father, please guide us and direct us. May your Holy Spirit keep reminding us of who we are and why we are. And that that is rooted in the gospel of Christ Jesus. And may out of that gospel, may you raise up godly leaders who will show forth the gospel in word and deed, in our conversations and our conduct. So that might be mirrored in those who follow those leaders. And all this we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.